take a moment and pray together, shall we? Our Father, Lord, what we have not, give us. Lord, what we know not, teach us. Lord, what we are not, make us. Forgive what we have been. Sanctify what we are. And order what we shall be. For your mercy's sake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, a, uh, a book was published containing a great, great spiritual lesson. Why Buildings Fall Down was not written by a couple of theologians, preachers, or mystics. In fact, I'm not even sure that the authors were even religious men. Uh, Matisse Levy and Mario Salvadori are structural or were structural engineers by trade. But their detailed description of an event that occurred now almost 40 years ago and still is studied by structural engineers hammers home an eerie analogy that every Christian should take note of. So, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. In July of 1980, the plushest and most modern hotel in Kansas City, Missouri, the Hyatt Regency, was ready for occupancy after two years of design and two more years of construction. The Hyatt Regency complex consists of three connected buildings, a slim reinforced concrete tower on the north end, housing the guest's bedroom and the suites, a 117 by 145 foot atrium with a steel and glass roof, 50 feet above the floor. And at the south end, a four-story reinforced concrete function containing all the service areas like meeting rooms and dining rooms and kitchens, etc., the tower was connected to the function block by three pedestrian bridges, or walkways, hung from steel trusses of the atrium roof. Two, one above the other, at the second and fourth floor levels near the west side of the atrium, and one on the third floor level near the east side of the atrium. Restaurant service was available at a bar set under the two stacked walkways on the west side of the atrium. Now, the main purpose of the walkways was to permit people to pass between the tower and the function block without having to cross the often crowded atrium. So at 7.05 p.m. on Friday, July 17th in 1981, the atrium was filled with more than 1,600 people down on the floor, most of them dancing to the music of a well-known band for what they called a tea dance competition, when suddenly a frightening sharp sound like a thunderbolt was heard, stopping the dancers in mid-step. Looking up toward the source of the sound, they saw two groups of people on the second and fourth floor walkways observing the festivities and stomping in rhythm with the music. As the two walkways began to fall, the observers were seen holding onto the railings with terrified expressions on their faces. And the fourth floor walkway dropped from the hangers, holding it to the roof structure, leaving the hangers dangling like impotent stalactites. Since the second floor walkway hung from the fourth floor walkway, the two of them began to fall together. 
There was a large roar as the concrete decks of the steel-framed walkways cracked and crashed down in a billowing cloud of dust on the crowd gathered around below. People were screaming, as you can well imagine. The west glass wall adjacent to the walkway shattered, sending shards flying over 100 feet. Pipes broken by the falling walkway sent jets of water spraying the atrium floor. It was a nightmare, a pandemonium that survivors would never forget. And you can go online and listen to the interviews with survivors even now. The final count reported 114 dead and over 200 injured, many maimed for life, and it was indeed the worst structural failure at that time ever to occur in the United States. Now, it is indeed a great tragedy when two balconies holding hundreds of people fall down. It is, however, a far greater tragedy when an entire nation collapses. For when that happens, hundreds, not hundreds, but hundreds of thousands even millions of lives are crushed in the process. Now that's what happened to the nation of Israel. As Israel slowly but surely abandoned her promise to love the Lord and keep his commandments, the nation collapsed. Just as the Hyatt collapsed under the weight of the crowd, so Israel collapsed under the weight of her unfaithfulness. In both of those situations, tremendous tragedy was the result of a serious defect in the structure. Someone wasn't paying attention to the plan. In case of Israel, the blueprint was very clear and very concise. Love God and live, or leave God and perish. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verses 15 to 18 read like this. Today, I am giving you a choice between good and evil, between life and death. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God, which I give you today, if you love him, obey him, and keep all his laws, then you will prosper and become a nation of many people. The Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are about to occupy, but if you disobey and refuse to listen and are led away to worship other gods, you will be destroyed. I warn you, here and now, you will not live long in that land. The blueprint, clear, concise, love God and live, leave God and perish. Now, as I said, Levy and Salvadori were engineers. They dealt with the physical structure, not spiritual stature. God's word, however, deals with us, doesn't it? question that's begged this morning, are we paying attention to the plan? No one would deny today that our nation is suffering from some serious structural defects. The thought of collapse is sobering and we don't always want to dwell on it, do we? But sooner or later we need to start paying attention, don't we? Can't just stick your head in the sand and say it's not happening. The structure of our society is beginning to bend and shift under the moral 
uh, the weight of moral deficiency and spiritual apostasy more than ever in history, yet remarkably people are still dancing to the music, oblivious to what's going on. The sharp thunderbolt of warning has sounded and the first particles of a crumbling world have begun to fall in all around us. We can see it every single day. And my friends, in my humble opinion, the spiritual sky is falling. It's falling on our nation. And if you, we ever want to avert total disaster, then we need to pay attention to what God is saying. We need to review the blueprint. Love God and live. Leave God and perish. We need to reinforce the structure. The undeniable truth is this, that a collapsing world needs a comprehensive cure. And the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Apostle Paul, has just the counsel for us. It is not complicated. It is it's not difficult for us to understand. And it just might be the most important message that the Lord has for us right now in this time. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans Romans chapter 13 and verses 8 to 14. Romans 13, verses 8 to 14. And follow along with me as I read. Verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now that's a packed text of Scripture for our time. And we're not going to finish it today. The urgent call for us today is to be a people who knows no bounds on love as we relate to others. Amen? And who tolerate no compromise on holiness as it relates to ourselves. In short, in the face of of a society on the verge of collapse, we must determine to love without condition and live without compromise. I'll say that again. In the face of a society on the verge of collapse, you and I must be determined to love without condition and live without compromise. As I revisit this text, I am once again intrigued by Paul's brevity on this. No frills here, just fact. He gives it to us straight, the uncut version. In fact, many of you, if you have been under my teaching for long, may have in the margin of your Bibles five phrases written next 
to these two paragraphs as reminders of what we are to be doing until the Lord returns. And I was struck this week as to how powerfully pertinent those things are to our times. And so here we are in this text again. Here are the five phrases. You can write them in the margin of your Bible. Pay up. That's verses 8 to 10. Wake up. Verse 11. Suit up. Verse 12. Wise up. Verse 13. And stand up in verse 14. Now we're going to unpack those things over the next two weeks. And the first one is this. Pay up, Paul says, the debt is due. The debt is due. Verses 8 to 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We have according to Paul, one ultimate obligation in these two verses. What is it? To love your neighbor. Paul viewed love as a duty we have to others, a debt that we are under obligation to pay. The NIV really clarifies this, um, Paul's intent here. The NIV translates like this, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. In other words, Paul's saying, pay all your debts. And if you're going to owe people anything, owe them more love. He's not forbidding us to borrow things or to take out loans in this text. Rather, he's emphasizing our ultimate responsibility as Christians to love one another. And love is a debt that can never, ever be fully discharged. The more it is paid the more it increases. The interest rate on love is phenomenal. Why? Because, as someone once put it, the practice of love makes the principle of love deeper and more and more active. You can never love someone enough. Can't check that box. Say, okay, I love that neighbor. Done. Debt paid. Move on. Who's next? That we have one overriding obligation to our neighbor, to love him or her, and we need to pay it up, Paul says. The thought might cross your mind, how did I ever incur that debt? I mean, when did I sign that note? I'll tell you when. The day you signed on with Jesus Christ. Because it's his commandment, isn't it? John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Love one another. By this all men you'll know, will know you're my disciples, that you love one another. A new commandment I give to you. Right? Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, talks about loving our neighbors and loving our enemies. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John uses the same word, that word ought in that text is the same word Paul uses about a debt that we owe, an obligation that must be paid. Because God so loved us, John says, we are obliged to love others. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Verses 20 and 21. Same chapter. I'll read it to you out of the message because I like the way this reads. If anyone boasts I love God and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he's a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he cannot see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. It's the great commandment, right? Some may not deserve it. In fact, most won't. But let me ask you, do we? Some may not want it. So what? Some will never return it. Tough cookies. We owe Christ-like love to everyone if we are one of Christ's disciples. If Jesus taught us anything, he taught us to give it freely and even when it's undeserved and with no thought of it ever coming back to us. Love gives, love sacrifices, love goes the distance for the other person with no thought of oneself. Love sees past the inadequacies, the weaknesses, and the unattractive traits of the other person. It even sees past the sins of other people. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. And you know what? That kind of love cannot be drummed up or motivated by a preacher like myself or by an emotion like a New Year's resolution. It, it can't be. You can't drum this stuff up yourself. It's not natural. It's supernatural. It comes from God. And it can only happen because deep in our hearts, somewhere in there, the Holy Spirit has moved in and made himself at home there. And that's the only way that that kind of love can happen. Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says, And this expectation will not disappoint us, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. When? While we were yet sinners. While we were yet sinners. Love is the inevitable result of a heart that has been given over completely to Christ. It's, it's the unmistakable evidence that a person is operating under the influence. The influence of the Holy Spirit. Because love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Every other one of those fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, actually falls under the umbrella of the word love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Moses wrote of it. Jesus lived it. The Gospels recorded it. And Paul repeated it. James called it the royal law. The royal law. Look at James chapter 2 and verse 8 just to see that. Probably we should underline that in our Bible. James chapter 2, verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, what is it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. We have one ultimate obligation, Paul says, 
toward our neighbor, to love him or her, no matter who he or she is, the way that God loves us. And that leads us to the realization that there is one ultimate conclusion in verse 10 of Romans chapter 13. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the law. See, love fulfills the law. That's what Paul's saying. Plain, simple, direct, and emphatic, by the way. When we love others the way that Jesus loved us, we are in no danger of collapsing the system. Can I say that again? When we love others as Jesus loved us, we are in no danger of collapsing the system. Let me ask you, in this time of COVID, in this time of ridiculous banter about the election, are you contributing to the collapse of the system? Or are you loving people so that that system stays intact? We'll be building the structure, if we love one another, according to the blueprint that God outlined. Love God and live, leave God and perish. Loving our neighbor means that we won't harm him, we won't cheat him, we won't kill him, we won't steal from him. It means we won't sleep with his wife, we won't want what is his, we won't violate any other commandment concerning our neighbor. That's why Paul can say love is a fulfillment of the law. Because love does no wrong to a neighbor, it does good to a neighbor, it's active, it's nonpartisan. Brandon Manning once wrote, the way we are with each other is the truest test of our faith. In other words, how you and I treat others on a day-to-day basis, how we react to the sin-scarred person on the street, how we respond to people's interruptions and intrusions into our schedules, how we relate to the normal confusion on a normal day is a better indication of our Christianity than all the other doctrines, creeds, or platitudes that we can recite. You realize that you can stand in church on a Sunday and recite the Apostles' Creed and then on Monday completely annihilate all of it by your Facebook post. We need to have a God filter over the things that we say and do and think and act out on. In an article in Christianity Today, Daniel Taylor points out, biblical love is always sacrificial love. Don't say you love someone unless you're willing to sacrifice for that person. Sacrificial love does not say do as I do or or you are going to hell. It says I would rather be crucified than have you be harmed. If my love has, has words but no heart, no hands and no feet, guess what? I'm nothing. Does that sound familiar to you? It ought to. It's read at practically every wedding you ever attend. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, guess what I am? A noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, I could be very right in all that I am claiming. But do not have love? I'm nothing. 
And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and not jealous. Love doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. How much clearer can you get than that? It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. We tend to think of this description in the context of a marriage, but whether you're talking about your mate or your family or your fellow Christians, the clerk at the grocery checkout, the stranger on the bus, or your worst enemy, guess what? The rules don't change. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. How deeply are you willing to look at another person? How ready are you to hear the story behind the hardened face? How available are you to take the time to get beneath the surface and see others as Jesus sees them? When you fall into bed at night before you drift off to sleep, and I ask myself the same thing, Remind yourself of this text. I just did this the other night because I was writing this out and, and I went, well, if you're going to charge others to do this, you better start doing it yourself. Do a little spot check when you lay your head on the pillow tonight. Ask yourself these questions. Was I kind today? Was I patient with the kids? Was I jealous of someone else's blessings? Was I prideful, arrogant, thinking myself better than others? Did I act like a jerk? Let's be honest. Did I pursue my own interests? Did I get unnecessarily angry or bitter or resentful? Am I still holding a grudge? Did I applaud unrighteousness or did I celebrate the truth today? Did I bear the unbearable, believe the unbelievable, hope the unseeable, and Endure the unthinkable. Did I really love anyone besides myself today? I've blown it so many times, haven't you? Even with my own family or the family of God. I think about the times when instead of thinking things through and seeing life through their eyes... I've jumped all over them. I have this knack of convincing myself that when I've done things like that, I've done it out of love. But the reality is I certainly didn't do it in love. Then it hits me. If I have such a struggle to love my own son or daughter or wife or my brother and sister in Christ in the church with, res with the respect that he or she deserves... How in the world will I ever begin to love an enemy who deserves absolutely none of my respect? You make the application, especially now in these days that we're living, because I've seen way too much of it in myself and in others. 
Friends, when one of the great reasons the structure of our society is collapsing around us is because we have a whole lot to learn about demonstrating God's kind of love, don't we? At least I do. It's a lesson Paul says we need to learn fast. And you know why? Because time is short and most people's love is growing cold. Jesus prophesied it, he said it, and it's happening. And so Paul says, secondly, we need to wake up because the end is near. Wake up, the end is near. You ever watch those shows on Mount Everest climbers? You know? It absolutely amazes me that people would willingly risk everything and choose to put themselves in such unbelievable conditions to reach the peak of the highest place on earth. The cold alone is enough to turn me off. I mean, think about it. I think it's a monumental achievement to leave my warm and cozy living room and go out and scrape the car on a January morning in Maine. I mean, these guys will brave 40 degrees below zero, wind chill factors, frostbitten extremities, and be barely able to breathe after 10 feet of climbing just to get to the summit. And I sit there in my easy chair, remote in hand, watching eating my popcorn and drinking coffee, and I'm simply exhausted. <laughs> like I'm right there with them, right? Risking my life. Don't you do that? I've read that Mount Everest is over 29,000 feet tall, but when you reach 26,250 feet, you enter what they call the death zone, right? There the altitude is so high it can't sustain human life. So the body is unable to acclimate to such a low level of oxygen. So if you stay in the death zone for too, too long, guess what happens? You die. And that's what happened to a climber in May of 2006. He was left by climbers in the death zone while they ascended to the top of Everest. And all the people who passed him realized that he was in trouble. But they assumed he was part of another team and someone else would rescue him. And not long after that tragedy, another climber, Lincoln Hall was his name, was found in the death zone. And he was rescued by a party of four climbers and 11 Sherpas who gave up their own summit attempt in order to stay with Hall and descend with him at the right time rate. You know, Hall later fully recovered. What made the difference between those two? What made the difference between the survival of the one and the death of the other? It's because they recognized, that last group recognized that the end was near for that man and were unselfish enough to do something about it. You recognize that the end is near? You recognize that Jesus Christ is right at the door? Or are you just passing it off? Because there are a lot of people out there that are in the death zone. And we need to do something about it. These people here, they weren't sleeping on the job. Look at verse 11 in uh, Romans 13. Do this, what? Love your neighbor. Knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Paul says... Wake up and do it now. Why? Because time, my friend, is slipping away. Rapidly. 
People are stuck in the death zone. And if we miss this opportunity, the opportunities that are presented to us today, you know what? They're gone forever. And share the truth of the gospel with someone, your boss. Write the letter to your sister. Give the hug to that friend who's struggling with depression. Introduce people to Jesus Christ. Show them what his love is all about. You may never get the chance again. Peter warned us in no uncertain terms in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He said, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And Paul warned us too in Colossians chapter 4, in another text, not just this one, but in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Now, I should just let that verse sit there for a while. The obvious application. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to respond to each person. Let me ask you, is that the way you talk on social media? Or in the secret places of your last gossip session? Letting your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt? It's not likely that any of the Christian people in the Hyatt Regency knew in July 1980 um, that it would be their last opportunity, or July 81, it would be their last opportunity to witness to anyone. I wonder how many people were loving their neighbor enough to be sharing Christ at the moment when that tragedy struck. How many of us are lulled into thinking that we have more time? How many churches out there are operating like they have an eternity to bring people into the kingdom? I think a lot of people are being gently lulled to sleep by the music of the world while the foot footing beneath us is starting to collapse. We spend far too much time on everything but testifying to the love of Christ. I think we're daydreaming in the middle of the night sometimes. In fact, our eyes have grown so accustomed to the dark that we don't even know the lights have gone out. Paul says, wake up. Again, I love the words of Brendan Manning, which I've shared with you before. He said, perhaps the real dichotomy in the Christian community today is not between conservatives and liberals, but between the awake and the asleep. And he's right. It is right in step with what Jesus taught. Jesus in Mark chapter 13 and verses 33 to 37 taught these words. Jesus said, be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. 
It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, Jesus says, if you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly, suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Friends, this is our wake-up call. Right here, in black and white. Romans 13. It's high time we rolled the sleeping giant over, isn't it? And pushed him out of the comfort of the pew and into the crisis in the street. Why? Because with each passing day, Christ's return grows incredibly closer and nearer. He's right at the door. I said it before. I'll keep saying it. That's what Paul means when he says, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Every day is one step closer to the return of Christ. And you say, but aren't we saved when we believe? Absolutely. But did you know theologically there's three aspects to our salvation? I'm just going to run down through this quickly to you. If you want to ask me about this later, you can. But just put it in your mind. Three aspects to your salvation, past, present, and future. The past aspect is called justification. When we believed in Christ, we were immediately saved and declared righteous in God's eyes. Not guilty. Sins forgiven. That's justification. But between the time when we first believe and the time when we meet Christ face to face, we're involved in the present aspect of our salvation, which is called sanctification sanctification is simply the process of growing in christ and becoming in practice what we are in position and it takes time you know how long it takes your whole life it is the future aspect of salvation our glorification to which paul is referring here the time when we will be transformed and become perfect in Christ. The ultimate consummation of our salvation that Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, when he said, I'm confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Every day is one day closer to that time, so Paul says you better stop lazing around, Right? The great preacher George Whitfield once said, quote, the Christian world is in a deep sleep. Nothing but a loud voice can awaken them out of it, unquote. And that was in 1739. If you've read about George Whitfield, you know that he had a booming voice. He didn't need a sound system to preach to a big crowd. So if that was true, that... In 1739, how much louder do you think that voice has to be in 2020? Deafeningly loud. The sleep is pretty deep. The structure is collapsing because the builders are dozing. This is 2020 and it's high noon. In his book, Standing Tall, author Steve Farrar provides a vivid picture of what we're up against. In the classic 1952 Western High Noon, how many of you have seen that? Gary Cooper gives an Academy Award-winning performance as a U.S. Marshal waiting the arrival of four vengeful gunmen bent on shooting him down. 
Three of the killers clean their guns and bide their time at the station. The train bearing their leader is scheduled to roll into the placid little desert town at 12 p.m., high noon. Throughout the taut drama, director Fred Zinnemann skillfully and repeatedly intersperses the action with two haunting images. The first image is that of empty train tracks stretching off into the heat-distorted horizon. And down those tracks, just out of sight, a relentless evil is bearing down on that peaceful town. The second image is that of ticking clocks, lots of clocks, wall clocks and grandfather clocks, desk clocks and pocket watches, all of them ticking down the hours and minutes and seconds until the howling locomotive rolls into the station bearing bitterness and death for a good man who must stand alone against the evil, against the odds. An interesting thing happened as Warner Brothers filmed that faithful approach of the noon train. You might not know this. You wouldn't know it watching the movie. But they just about lost their cameraman in that scene. He was lying on his stomach in the middle of the tracks, focusing on the locomotive rushing in from the horizon. And it was such a dramatic shot. The train rushed closer and closer, billowing white smoke, and then as it drew nearer, it started to billow black smoke. What a great effect, the guy thought. The cameraman was relishing every, every exciting frame of this. But what he didn't understand was that the black smoke was meant to be a distress signal to him because the train had lost its brakes. And looking through the lens, he watched the death train hurtle toward his camera. But wasn't the engineer overdoing it a little bit on that whistle? And why wasn't he hearing the squeal of brakes? And my goodness, the thing didn't seem to be slowing down at all. And at the last possible second, the cameraman hurled his camera to one side. He leapt off the tracks as the locomotive screamed right through the station without stopping. Now, the camera was destroyed at impact, but the film cartridge remained intact. Fortunately, so did the cameraman. Why did I tell you that story? Because, folks, it's high noon for the church. The clock is ticking, and time is flying, and the train is rolling in with no thought of slowing down. The black smoke is starting to billow. Read it right there in Romans 13. Let me read it to you out of the message. Beginning in verse 11, make sure that you don't get so absorbed and exhausted in taking care of all your day-to-day -day obligations that you lose track of the time and doze off, oblivious to God. The night is about over. Dawn is about to break. Be up and awake to what God is doing. God is putting the finishing touches on the salvation work he began when we first believed. We can't afford to waste a minute must not squander these precious daylight hours in frivolity and indulgence in sleeping around in dissipation, in bickering and grabbing everything in sight. Get out of bed and get dressed. Don't loiter and linger, waiting until the very last minute. Dress yourselves in Christ and be up and about. 
over 1,900 years ago, the Holy Spirit told Christians that the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. If that were true then, how much more is it true now? Friends, we really need to pay up because the debt to love our neighbors to life is long overdue. We need to wake up because the end is fast approaching. Are you dressed and ready? If not, then you need to suit up because the fight is on. That's in verse 12, and that's where we're going to start next week. That, of course, is if we're still here. So, Maranatha, our Lord, come. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words of truth, words of warning. May your Holy Spirit make them alive in us, and may we make the necessary changes in our lives to follow them and bring you great pleasure because there are souls at stake and we look eagerly for your soon return, Lord Jesus. Come. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.